This episode of Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm Leila McKinnon, and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way, made in partnership with Uber Eats. Each week, I speak to strong and passionate women who are leading their lives their way. I've been a journalist for nearly 30 years, and I've interviewed some of the biggest celebrities in the world. But along the way, I've discovered that the most interesting stories often come from people who we've never or very rarely heard from before. Deborah Wallace is best known as the gangbuster. In her 36-year career with New South Wales Police, she rose to the top of her ranks, taking on feared gangs, drug rings and murderers. You'd think she'd be a real head kicker. But this woman of force says true leadership is really about empathy, humility and authenticity. Deb, you took down the bikies and you did it all in chiffon skirts and high heels. That's not the picture we have in our minds of police officers, but you've always been true to yourself. It wasn't actually anything I did consciously. It all goes back to my very first day when I started the cops in 1983 and I went out to Blacktown, Mount Jewitch, my first station, and still trying to find your way, I guess. So in those days, you know, wearing a uniform, so you all looked the same. There was no sort of decision about what to wear. But I remember the words that resonated with me throughout my entire career from a, an iconic second-class sergeant called Joan Steadman, and she was from the old school. And I say that with greatest respect because women weren't front line given guns, same opportunities until the late 70s. So I sort of came in in what you call probably the, the new group. And she got me aside as I walked in that station, and I was fairly daunted that day, and she looked at me very sternly, as Joan tended to do, and she just looked me up and down and said, I'm going to give you some advice. And I thought, oh, what have I done wrong already? And she said, I want you to remember you're a policewoman, not a policeman. And I want you to always be true to who you are. Never compromise your integrity or your femininity. Look at yourself in the mirror and be yourself. And you were always yourself. Did you get the respect that you deserved at every stage along the way? You were in a very masculine and very male-dominated career at a time when things were very different. Did you always get respect or how did you command it? I, I, I think you have to establish, as anyone does, I guess, a credibility level. And um, I had to do that very early on. I was very lucky that I had the support of my bosses. And I guess what they recognised was just someone who was committed and willing to work really hard. There was nothing I wouldn't do that was asked of me. If I stood on a street corner doing traffic patrol for 12 hours, I would do that. So I think if you show from the beginning you're a willing worker and you're willing to work hard, they'll give you opportunities. But... but of course, um, I remember my very, I suppose, one and very few times that I come across sort of, I guess, I don't know if it's jealousy. I was in the detectives at Blacktown and I was working really hard and, and I got an opportunity after the murder of Nurse Anita Cobby and I was working with a partner who was fantastic. And then someone who was only a couple of years older than me or ranks, uh, I was a constable, he was a first class. We're at a social function and I was very mindful that I didn't drink at functions because I didn't want to slip up and that sounds ridiculous, but you had to be really cautious, I guess. I didn't want anyone to be compromised, well, for me to compromise myself by saying something silly if I'd had a, a bit too many champagne. So I was always, I always 
went and left early and it was a Christmas function and a, this guy said to me who was in the detectives, who really wasn't one of the hardest workers either, and he just looked at me and said that I shouldn't even be in the detectives, that I'm only there because I was given a soft spot by the officer in charge of the detective's office and they just needed a woman. And I really didn't take any notice of him and I didn't have to say anything because the peer group sort of surrounded you and protected you. and um, So and they stuck up for you there and then? Uh, not so much at the time, they didn't know. It wasn't until a few days later that I was approached by the officer in charge, Sergeant Rosetta, and he just said, I heard what happened at the Christmas party. He said, you're here, nothing to do with your gender. You're here because you work hard, you're a good worker, and I think that you'll progress through the ranks with some good training. You're raw, but I think I see the raw talent. So I really appreciate it. It was the peer group that surrounded me. It would support. And as you say, you were involved in the reenactment of Anita Cobby's train journey and, and her journey home before the vicious and appalling attack and, and, and murder of, of her. What was that like? You're a police officer, but you're a person too. How did you feel reenacting her last journey home? I didn't think much of it right leading up to it. It was a case that the officer in charge um, needed, I suppose, a gimmick because after about two days, Graham Rosetta, who was the officer in charge, he was a detective sergeant, an amazing hero of mine. And I don't like to use that word, but let's just say he was iconic and a great role model. And he was running out of options because he established very quickly that Anita's murder was a what you'd call one of those random ones, not someone known to her. And he established that very quickly, which are the really difficult ones to solve. So after about two days, he looked at me and said, Wallace, how tall are you? And I said, five foot eight. And how how old are you? And I said, 25. He said, yep, I think it'll work. And the idea was to dress me up in clothes similar to what she wore and do a reenactment. It was all a bit chaotic on the day because we did it exactly the same. She was um, kidnapped and murdered on the 2nd of February, 1986. So we did the reenactment the following Sunday. I didn't, I thought it was a reenactment. I, I sort of didn't want to ask too many questions because I was just doing what he asked of me. But when we got to Central, where we started the journey, which is where she caught the train after having dinner with her girlfriends, I, there was a whole media contingent. And I was, I mean, I'd been in the cops three years. I was very junior. I was probably overwhelmed, but I didn't want to make a mistake. So I was really concentrating on doing the right thing and getting on the train when I was told to, getting off the train, walking the route that they thought she walked. And at a certain point, the detective said to me, we want you to stop outside this house number and we just want you to stop and just stand there because that's where we think she was kidnapped because that's where witnesses saw a car, lights take off, they heard screams. So it was about just getting on dark. And I remember standing there and, and no doubt the detectives doing their thing, looking at the lighting, looking at the location. And I remember thinking at that moment that she would have been here a week ago, a woman with her whole life in front of her. A car did a U-turn containing five of the killers. And when that pulled up, she still wouldn't have had a clue. And when the door opened and they dragged her in, what was she thinking? What terror did she feel, even at that moment, not having any idea what was to happen in the following hours? And all I could think of was the terror she must have felt. That empathy and imagination, I'm imagining, would have stood you in good stead because people look at the police in a certain way, but you would have to feel it 
to chase it, wouldn't you, to, to make a difference? You're, it's a public service industry. Absolutely. And I think um, just to, to say otherwise, you'd be sort of kidding yourself. And I think what that is important for the survival, I guess, of police is to be empathetic and understand and be compassionate, but not be absorbed with it all. I think you've still got to have that that balance because you can't do your job if you take on all of the the trauma that others are, are having. You've got to sort of stand back. But you can't also, I would imagine, be too tough and closed off, which is sometimes when we talk about hardened cops as if they don't feel anything. But I'd imagine you wouldn't be a very good police officer if you were that hardened. And you've only got to look into the eyes of those that do the most horrific of cases. You can see it in their eyes. I had the, the honour of interviewing a, a, a former detective way above me. He retired many years ago the other day and we're talking about a homicide. And I asked him because he was, I knew him when I was very junior. He'd come to a number of murders that I had. And And um, he was from the Homicide Squad. And I looked into his eyes. He's long retired now. And I said, do you ever forget? And he said, you never forget. The ones you don't solve are the ones that stay with you. And I looked in those eyes and I thought, what an amazing detective you were. There were female officers before you, but female role models were very rare. And if you don't see it, you can't be it. When you were approached or when you volunteered to lead a task force at one stage, the people that came before you were men called the snake and slasher. And you doubted yourself whether you could measure up to those kind of terms. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was a case that I was lucky enough to work at um, State Crime Command after 22 years working at police stations, mainly as a detective. And I was lucky enough, my Assistant Commissioner Commander Morgan gave me an opportunity to work at State Crime Command. And at the time, I became the commander of the Asian Organised Crime Squad. And I had been working on Asian crime for the best part of 15 years. An opportunity came up for a rotation of commanders amongst State Crime Command and at the time um, our now current Deputy Commissioner Dave Hudson was the Assistant Commissioner in charge of State Crime and he asked for existing superintendents if they wanted to move on from their current command to anything else before he filled the vacancies. So what was open was a number of squads but in particular of interest to me was the Middle East and Organised Crime Squad. The reason being is it was still what I call proactive investigations. It was also gang related which is what I really like. But my predecessors were originally Superintendent Bob Ingster, known as Snake, and then following him when Middle Eastern was set up, Superintendent Ken Mackay, known as Slasher. And they were iconic and they were bigger than life. They looked what you'd expect. They were tough. They talked tough. They they were tough and they had the best one-liners. So when I went and saw Mr Hudson and I said, I'd like to put a bid in for a squad. He goes, yeah, Deb, what is it? And I said, oh, well, and I started to talk myself out of it. Said, look, you know how I, I am. I wear high heels. I wear in, in floral dresses. And he's just looking at me. He said, so what do you want? I said, I'd like Middle Eastern. And he said, well, if you want it, it's yours. Why were you talking yourself out of it? And I said, because I didn't know politically if I would fit the mould of what they were looking for. And he just looked at me and said, you know, you're one of the most senior superintendents. You've got more gang experience than most. So it's a perfect fit. And he said, stop doubting yourself. And he was right. And that's an understandable hurdle, though, because you haven't seen anyone like you do that job before. And the very fact that you did it 
open the door for so many other women to walk through it without those doubts. But as well as being a pioneer for women, you you also sort of pioneered preventative policing. If we go back a bit to Cabramatta and the drug crime gangs there, tell me about how that happened, how you moved into trying to nip the problem in the bud. I guess it was a case of um, wanting to do the best I could. I'd been at Cabramatta for five years and um, in about 1995, uh, we had a, a sort of a perfect storm, I guess. We had firstly the assassination of the local member out there, John Newman, by a political rival. And around the same time, the very violent street gang who ran the heroin trade, known as the 5T gang, the leader, Tree Min Tran, was murdered. There's a lot of belief, I guess, amongst those that didn't know that it was probably a rival gang and there's going to be bloodshed on the streets. It was a very violent area, but early on, we believed it was probably an inside job. No one's been charged for the murder of Tree Min Tran, but I think police pretty well know who did it. So at the time, my boss, um, Chief Superintendent Paul McKinnon, um, a very um, forward thinker, a progressive thinker, I think, uh, quite unusual, and went on to run the Sydney Olympics as only he could. And he got me aside and said, Wallace, I want you to run a gang unit in Cabramatta and I want you to take out the 5T and also deal with the drugs, which was a pretty mammoth task because, you know, they've been around for a while. So I thought to myself, this is a great opportunity. I was a young sergeant. I don't want to fail. I want to do the best. So Paul McKinnon had actually given me a book called Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and said, I want you to study that. And I might ask you questions about it. I thought, oh, like a textbook. But I learned a lot of things in that book, which was about it's okay to think differently. And one of the things it said, you can't beat your enemy unless you understand them. I, we had a good relationship with the gangs, believe it or not. There was a very respectful relationship, not by they us. Could, did they call you mad- madam? Yeah, they called me madam. I think they could. Yeah, it was just, and, I, and I, I like to think, as I said to them, I hope it's more about respect than my age. But anyway, <laughs> um, so they would sit at an outdoor coffee shop, the senior leadership group, for want of a better word, the board of directors, for want of a better yes, word. Yes, you make it sound good. <laughs> and, uh, and I sat at, and I, I sat down after I was given this new role and just said, so listen, guys, I've got to break you up. I've got a new job. He said, oh, we don't want you to leave, madam. Why are you leaving? I said, no, no, my job's here and my job is to stop you. And they started to laugh and and rolled around a bit and said, madam, you're so stupid. Anyway, (laughs) they said, you know, but we feel sorry for you. I thank you very much. They said, we'll give you an idea. They said, well, tell us about ourselves. He said, we were not always machete-wielding, gun-toting, murdering thugs, selling drugs to the streets. We were people looking for a new life. We were kids on the streets of South Vietnam. We escaped, went to prison camps and made our way to Australia for a better life. Our family lived in hope of that. But when we got here, we didn't have family. Our family was still in Vietnam. We were boys aged 14 when we left and we're now, you know, 18, 19. So we did what we did to survive. We did crime because that's all we did know. We didn't have any education. We had no English skills. So we were never going to get a job. So the challenge for you, madam, is to not worry about us because we will either die from another gang or ourselves. We'll either grow up and grow out or we'll go to jail. But the young generation is the ones you have to concentrate. So I said, so what do you suggest I do? And they said, these young men here, these young boys, are looking at us as their role models they're very wrong about our role model stature. So, Isn't it a shame that you've got these compassionate, intelligent people who are speaking to you like this, who are sort of, yeah, trapped in this world and they know it? Totally different to the gangs that came after, I have to say. But yes, exactly right. 
talk about empathy, I guess. So I thought about it and they said, if you need to get them an education, and of course, these young ones that were following on didn't have the same thing. It was a cycle, didn't have um, language skills, didn't have an education. So I went about trying to get them into schools who were fantastic, the local schools. But what were they going to do with these kids? So when I'm faced with this dilemma and, you know, the gangs would look at me and say, Madam, time's running out. We're going to go back to machete wielding soon. I suppose a change in my life was I met a priest called Father Chris Riley from Youth Off the Streets in 1995, and um, which started our lifelong friendship. And he simply, in his no-nonsense way, said, I'm a registered school myself because I was the principal of Boys Town. And if you've got a problem, I think I can deal with it for you. Came out, met the gangs. They immediately had respect. And he, in his no-nonsense way, together with his dog, Great Dane Collingwood, just said, you be here three hours a day, three days a week with Madam, because she has to sit here too, and I'll teach you school. And he did for a year. Isn't, and that was groundbreaking at the time. Obviously, there's more community initiatives today than there was. You didn't have quite the same amount of empathy for the gangs that you dealt with later under MEOX, the Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad. And we spoke about that on, on Channel 9 years ago when, when you were there. I always remember you saying, uh, you know, a lot of these guys just wanted another jet ski in the garage or a, or a flasher car, and that's harder to feel empathy for, isn't it? Exactly right, because, you know, if I look back at my the Asian street gangs, they weren't making excuses for their behaviour. They were just getting me to understand. And their attitude was, you do the crime, you do the time. If you catch us, we'll just do it. They were very solid and up front. Then I moved on to um, the Middle Eastern organised crime and, and, and it's a bit of a misnomer, I guess. I think we just made had the names so it fitted nicely on our cars, like Meox, like a brand, because really they were anything but organised at that level. They were just really ad hoc, though, which in fact probably makes them more violent and more dangerous because there's no discipline. So they were just, you know... Oh, well, I remember going to one and we were trying to work out a motive for a shooting and it turned out it was over trolley rage at a supermarket between wives. So there was no logic. But a lot of their crimes were opportunistic and standover intimidation because of their size, their groups, their reputation. And, and they were second and third generation. So they didn't have the excuse of saying, I didn't get opportunities for education or, you know, to, to lead an honest life. And it was interesting. It was more along... Um, tribal or even family lines um, or people they went to school with as opposed to like later on the bikey gangs of any sort of branding. They they also had some respect for you though, or at least one of them did. He was caught on a phone tap saying about you, she is like me, a general in an army. And then he, he kind of I don't know, almost had a bit of a fascination with you. Yeah, Farhad Kwame from, he was um, the Afghani Brothers for Life, which was an opposing chapter to um, the Lebanese Brothers for Life, um, headed by, originally by Bassam Hamza who then anointed Fahad Kwame to set up a, another chapter while he was wallowing away at Supermax. I spoke to him a few times, uh, Fahad. He was interesting as well. He certainly wasn't the same line as, as the age. He was first generation refugee as well, but came here as a very young child, so did have education. But he did believe in his mind that he was getting his group together to look after them. He forgot to mention in the conversations we had that, you know, to make a life better for his young brothers, and I say that, in inverted commas, because, you know, making life better was weird. Well, you can hang out with me. We're going to have a great clubhouse, but here's a gun. You've got to go and shoot that person. I want you to hide my drugs and carry my, hide my weapons for me. Forgot about that. So, yeah, a bit misguided, I suggest. But, yeah, yeah, he thought we were similar. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back after a message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is proud to support Feed Appeal, who are dedicated to improving the lives of people experiencing hunger or food insecurity. The work of Feed Appeal and their partner charities has always been crucial in providing meals for struggling Australians, 
But since COVID-19, there has been a sharp increase in food relief requests, with many Aussies reaching out to ask for help for the first time in their lives. Throughout the pandemic, Feed Appeal have worked incredibly hard to maintain their vital services and innovate new ways to help those in need. And as part of the ongoing partnership between Uber Eats and Feed Appeal, more than 760,000 meals have been delivered to vulnerable households. If you're looking for help or know someone in your community who is, please reach out to one of Feed Appeal's partner charities in your state at feedappeal.org.au. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Deb Wallace. You also then, as you mentioned, went on to bring down the bikey gangs and lead strike force Raptor in some of those arrests and taking apart the clubhouses. Was that daunting? Because they do try to intimidate, don't they, with their colours and moving around in big groups. How do you go about doing that? It's interesting with outlaw motorcycle gangs, they're an international reputation, I guess, for fear. And there's lots of like TV shows sort of depicting them as these. And they are when they're together. You know, they, they've got this... You know, they all hang out together. They wear their, that's one of the things, that's why they started recruiting a lot of Middle Easterns and Islanders in more recent years because of that, that big, that, the big size to intimidate people, which is their business. You know, if I go into a, a business and say, you've got to pay me $100 a week, they're not going to look at me and think, you're kidding, aren't you? But if you go in They should know better than that, <laughs> That's though. right. <laughs> what, what lurks beneath. <laughs> but if you're wearing a, you know, the Hells Angels um colours, then immediately you're not scared of the individual, you're scared of the group. So that has quite a business. But they think they're tough as a group. The idea was at Raptor, and it was initiatives of most junior staff and the amazing group of inspectors there that I had working for me, or with me, I should say, not for me. And it was about saying, let's let's unravel everything that they represent, and let's do it bit by bit. And um, one of my inspectors, uh, Darren Beachy, called it consequence-based policing and had like a menu of treatment options. So if they're doing this, how do we do that? And we had about 25 or 30 options that can run from dismantling clubhouses to stopping their runs through consorting or even issuing lots of um, fines so that their licence are cancelled so they can't then drive to locations to plot the criminal activity. So very from very complex investigations down to the most simple sort of broke their hearts or their spirits by pulling apart those clubhouses because that's a big part of who they are, isn't it? Clubhouses was their eth- part of their ethos, their colours, their runs and their clubhouses were their cornerstone. It's where they could meet behind closed doors and do club business. You know, drink- What were they like? What's it like inside one of those? They ranged from very basic ones to the smaller clubs to amazing things. Like I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, such as they have stripper poles, a stage, a boxing rings, karaoke machines, a fully set up bar, probably the best one. And and again, they're not one of the, what I would call the high risk sort of groups. There was certainly a 1% group was the Gladiators, which is one of the oldest groups, less known. They're up around Maitland, Newcastle. I tried to convince them not to be a 1% to give up the 1%. Did you? Did you try and talk them out of the the membership? Yeah, because when we did the clubhouse over, it was just amazing. It had this younger group part of the group were selling drugs around the area so they had to pay the consequence which is have their clubhouse dismantled but when we went in had this beautiful pool like an an in-ground pool and it had small tiny tiles inlaid with the gladiators logo on the bottom of the pool I mean it would have cost thousands they had um, a garden barbecue area it was very family orientated which is a little bit weird had a a memorial area for funerals so that if people couldn't afford a funeral they had a, a rock where they could remember their buddies. It was like amazing RSL inside. And how do you dip out of being the, a 1%? Like if they wanted to, could they have not?
not been a gay. Yeah. It's it's like we see, and people say, what's the difference between, say, you know, the Ulysses and the veterans to meaning biker groups as to 1%. Bearing in mind, they have to, a 1% group is self-declared. They declare themselves as a criminal organisation. We're an outlaw motorcycle organisation, self-declared. goes back to 1947 in America. If you wanted to give up your 1% status and say, we're now just going to be a social club, then it's about just removing the 1% from anything, logos, tattoos on their body, their colours, it's, it's very, to get rid of their constitution to say we're a 1% club, get rid of everything relating to 1% and then you become a social club. I love it that you tried to talk them into that. Yeah, because the older group we met um, up there that day, they were highly respectful. They were well into their 60s. I think three of them had one leg missing from bike accidents to the point that they were highly respectful trying to explain that they weren't doing selling the drugs. I said, yeah, but you've let people into your club that are. So you have to pay the consequences. Amazing memorabilia, historic, which we gave back to them because it did have historical you know, relevance, I guess. And it wasn't, we didn't need to keep it. But their club was dismantled. And um, and, and to the point that we, these old blokes that I was talking to, we even, we had the Salvation Army out there doing a wonderful luncheon for all the cops we had raiding different places out there. I felt so sorry for them that I said, do you want to have lunch? So we gave them, you know, steak sandwiches and they were very grateful. And this is where we had this discussion about giving up the 1%. I think they were sort of considering it, but it never came to fruition. Now, we've spoken about your wardrobe and how you love to be feminine and wear beautiful clothes. And I read a great quote and a lot of the things I'm talking about today are from your book, A Woman of Force by Mark Morrie. It's the true story of Deborah Wallace, the cop known as the gangbuster. So you did get that hardcore moniker in the, in the end, didn't you? Forget about the snake. The yeah, gangbuster. And it was a sort of immediate term that came out and I was sort of, at the time, trying to talk myself out of that again because I said, look, I'm not the gangbuster. It's I'm part of a group of gangbusters. So I was a little bit embarrassed of that because, as in the cops, no one does anything as an individual. It's all about teamwork. You don't operate without a team. Well, we'll talk about leadership in just a second because that is a real leadership thing to say. But the quote from the book um, I was referring to about your board says from Brad Abdi, Deb may drift through the office in her pretty dresses, almost dancing like Fred Astaire, but don't be fooled. She is as cunning as a shithouse rash. Is that fair? <laughs> uh, I suppose it's, it's often someone said to, I heard another thing once, they said, she looks, you know, like your sister or even, you know, dare I say mother to some. But don't poke her. She's like a sleeping bear. If you, if you, you know, and, and I really, one of the things I really hate is bullies. So that's, I really won't tolerate that. And yeah, I suppose in that case, it is a bit like, you know, I don't see the worst of me. I try, I don't think I ever brought it out except a couple of times. Um, so, you, so generally speaking, you went about, you went around things rather than barging through and confronting people front on. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think I like to use a more conciliatory approach and get to discuss things in a partnership and negotiate. I laugh. I don't have the fancy one-liners. I, I think I can get more with honey than I can vinegar, for want of a better word. So as a leader, what would your advice be to other people about how to lead a team because you've done it to such great effect in such a difficult circumstance? I got some very good advice, I guess, along the way, and that is Never fear to say, I don't know, I don't have the answers, to seek help when you need it and to also be prepared to follow in the right circumstances. You don't always have to be in front. You can lead 
from behind if you recognise that others just might be able to do that better than you or have the answers. It's about bringing a sense of humility and not thinking you have all the answers because you might have some, but not everyone can know everything about everything. I'd imagine that that would be a mistake a lot of people would make, men or women in leadership positions, that they feel like they have to take it all on themselves and that they're frightened to say that they don't know something because it might undermine them. It must be a real leap of faith to be humble. And I think it's a case of people confuse management with leadership. And I see that a lot. I used to go to a lot of um, leadership programs. And when I'm there, I'm thinking, I don't know why they offer just leadership to senior people, because that's more about management. I've seen amazing leaders from the most junior of rank, and I've seen not very strong leaders at senior ranks. So I often would say to people, don't necessarily equate rank with leadership. What are some things, if you look back, that you feel that you could have done better or any missteps in your career that could perhaps help other people? I recall once um, when I was at Cabramatta, it was a very tumultuous time within the command. We were facing we just a parliamentary inquiry for the mismanagement of the area by the police at the time. I was at Internal Affairs. I was a chief inspector at the time. And we were trying to not just win the hearts and minds of the community who were suffering, but also I could see this great divide within the command. So it was about winning the, the confidence back of the staff who felt the rank and file felt alienated from their senior management who weren't there. And one of the things we had to do was get rid of the bullying. There was some bullying going on by a middle rank. So once we took away the illegitimate power, I guess you could call it, I felt that we'd had a win and, and so much so that a, a young, after a particular meeting where the staff felt empowered and voiced their empowerment to the union who were very supportive from head office. Afterwards, a young constable came to me um, well, he apparently after the meeting, he'd walked out and was probably vocal about that we don't have to put up with bullying anymore in the command, blah, blah, blah. He then was drawn into an office by a couple of people that I'd call bullies and read the riot act to pull his head in. He was so distressed about how he was treated that he came and saw me and said, I need to tell you this. And I said, look, I can take action, but is it going to make it worse for you because they're going to know exactly what's happened here that you've told me. And as a very young constable, he said to me, but we don't have to put up with that anymore. We've proved that. We've got a voice. So I want you to say something. I want you to stand up for me because I mightn't have a voice at my rank. Now, at that point, I would say to anyone, when you're really angry, walk away and think about how you're going to say something and what you're going to do because I don't think you make the best decisions when you're rushed, when you've got the, the red... The red, the red sort mist. Of, yes, the red mist. And I walked downstairs and, and I do apologise for my language when I say this. I, I just so angry. I walked into the office and I just said to these two uh, sergeants, I asked them first, did they say this to this young fellow? And he said, they said, yeah, they didn't seem to think anything wrong with it. I just said, if you ever treat anyone in this command like that again, I'll rip off the stripes off your shoulders and I'll shove them so far up your arse you'll never see them again. And as soon as I said it, I went, oh, what did I say? I couldn't take it back. But that came back to me, I suppose, tenfold in that they used that against me in a public forum by hiding behind someone very powerful in the media who I think believed what he was told, and that's Alan Jones. And it wasn't about what he was saying. He was simply, I suppose, guilty of not checking his facts about me. I remember that day. So I remember it because I know who's told him to say it. And they know 
I know. So what happened was uh, there was a time of turbulence in the force and people were undermining you. And he was saying things like, there are now many people questioning the rapid rise of this blindly ambitious and ruthless woman. And it was an ongoing campaign, wasn't it? And they said that you had been changing things in the computer in a corrupt way that wasn't even possible. It's all there in the book and it's fascinating to read. You tried to ignore it for a while, but in the end you had to fight it, didn't you? Yeah, I ignored it for a number of months and, and it wasn't until, yeah, that was one of the things that I changed the computer entry just to hide that there was gangs in schools in Cabramatta and you just can't physically do that. You can't change things. It, it stands as it is as a permanent record, whoever puts the entry in. So I ignored it for a long while thinking it'll just go away and then a young constable caught me on the stairs one day and said, hello boss. I said, oh, you know, hello Johnny. He said, you're not going to get sacked, are you? And I said, I hope not. Why? What have you heard? And he said, no, about what you did. And I said, what did I do? And he said, you changed the computer entry. We're told you're not allowed to do that. That's really bad. I went, Johnny, you can't change the computer entry. He said, yeah, but you're a boss. You might be able to. I said, no, 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 no one can. And he went, oh, okay. Oh, that's okay then. And I I went back to my office and I thought about that. And I thought, if there's enough mud thrown, then it sticks. When even people who know better start to believe it because it's heard from a powerful person with a powerful microphone. And I still had outstanding trials. And if a barrister suddenly started to challenge my integrity in front of a jury, I don't have to just have integrity. I have to have the perception of integrity. So that really worried me. So I knew then I had to fight to defend my name. And you did. And it took a few years, but um, there was a negotiated settlement in the end. What did you do with the money when you celebrated? So what had happened, we had an undisclosed settlement, but I was feeling good about myself. I felt it was difficult to take the defamation case on because I had to do it myself. It wasn't done through the police force because it was, I don't know how it all works, but it was personal attack. So it's about me. So I felt pretty good that I did it, everything quietened down. And then someone said to me, you know, you should celebrate that sort of, I don't think you call, I don't have to call it a win, but let's just say that it's over. You should celebrate. They said, you know, why don't you buy yourself some shoes or some dress? And I said, yeah, I could do that. And they said, so what would you really like? I said, something that I've never had. So what's that? I said, I've never had boobs. And they went, what? They looked at me and I said, You've gave me an idea. So I went and had uh, breast augmentation, which one could say was the best um, fashion accessory I could have bought. Thank you very much, Alan Jones. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, we've spoken a bit about leadership and about being a woman in in a male-dominated world, but I'd like to talk to you about public service because even now you're retired, you're still involved in the community and helping people in the community. What do you do and why do you do it? A couple of things. I've gone on the board of the Swansea Workers Club. The reason being is my brother, who I'm very close with, he's involved in the bowls there. And when I get to watch him play bowls, I got to see how important these local clubs are in their community as a source of enjoyment, as a social interaction. And and when COVID happened, I saw a lot of the community who were elderly having no social interaction and I could see what was happening. So I thought, well, an opportunity came up and I was asked, would I consider going on the board? And I thought, well, I don't know if it's sort of me. And then I thought, it's what this club stands for. It's about providing a service to the community and these service clubs do that. I also do Meals on Wheels, which people often laugh because I don't cook. So people that we deliver meals to might be happy to know that my contribution in the kitchen is I peel potatoes. You're and more of an Uber driver yes, than more, the cook, yeah. yes. And, and I feel like Goma Pyle, for those that know Goma Pyle, I, I do KP duty and I get to do the potatoes. So I do that and of course another passion is um, the Homicide Victim Support Group, a legacy of love and remembrance to Grace Lynch, the 
mum of Anita Cobby. We now have starting the project of Grace's Place, which will be a world's first trauma and, and rehabilitation centre for children between the ages of three and 15 who've suffered the effects of homicide. That's due to start, but of course, a lot of money has been raised and also the governments were very generous to give us our building fees. But of course, you have to provide ongoing costs. So we've started an opportunity shop called New Leaf at Parramatta. Does that bring you great happiness when you give back to the community? Because you'd be entitled after everything you've done for Australia and for the community, to sit back and sunbathe and drink cocktails. Yeah, but when you're a cop, you know, what kept me going, and I guess we talk about the one percenters being bikies. I like to think of the one percenters in the community. The people that we targeted and the people that we arrested really are a small minority of society. I remember thinking that they're not the representative of society, of the community. The society's beautiful. We've got wonderful community. 99% are just great, good living people who just want to do their best in life. So I wanted to be part of that community when I left and doing the stuff I do brings me great joy and great fulfillment. So you, I'd imagine, would say to people to lead your life, you know, if you were asked with empathy, humility and the ability to give back. And also humour. I think you have to learn to not take yourself too seriously and be able to laugh at yourself. And I forgot authenticity. I mean, you've never been anything else but you. I went to a few leadership things during that career and and some of the things they brought out at one stage, a brand me, and I was very vocal against that. I said, what's developing a brand? I I always think back to the bikies. They're nothing without a brand. Who will they be beneath that? Really, a little nobody. So if you develop a brand, what are you behind the brand? People can pick a fake. So when I people say to me, what's the secret to being, um, and I'm not suggesting I was a success, that would be judged by other people. What's the secret of longevity? And I think to be authentic, that people can pick a fake and there's no way if you're a leader, they're going to follow you if they think that you're not real. Deb Wallace, thank you. Thank you so much, Lana. Thank you so much for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could leave a rating and review as it really helps us to reach more people. We'll see you next week.